Absolutely. And in fact, it's it's something that we've tried to instill here at Vol. I do think that there's a, a, a level of authority that GBS needs to play. We look at the investments being asked, both at a global level, at a regional level, and a life cycle level. Anything over a million dollars is um, being uh, passed through a post-implementation review. Citizen developers are going to be an inherent important part of how we deliver business capabilities. The citizen developer can be a really powerful enabler for us. Welcome to the GBS Masterminds podcast, season three. CIOs are from Mars, GBS leaders are from Venus. Today, we have two guests, one a CIO, Brian, and then the second, a GBS leader, Trista. I'll let them introduce themselves. Go ahead, Brian. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Um, Brian Gabbard, uh, I'm the CIO and an SVP of Global Shared Services here at Ball Corporation. Hi everyone, my name is Trista Fisher and I am the Vice President of Global Business Services here at Ball Corporation. All right, Trista and Brian, it's unique that both of you are from the same company. We would love to hear how you do this at um, Ball Corporation. So I'm gonna jump right in. The first question is the CIO office, the office of the no. This is for you, Brian. There is a perception, uh, especially with business leaders, that they want to do a lot of stuff. They go to the IT office and the IT office says, they shuts them off in a way. Do you think this perception is true? No. I think um, that perception is, is a bit nuanced. And when you think about the role of the CIO, there are a lot of factors we have to look at and take into consideration. Uh, technical debt, total cost of ownership, resource constraints. Um, so when I think about the office of no, uh, the no is often uh, uh, underpinned with context around some of those key factors. I think the big rub happens uh, because of a lot of the silos too and the lack of prioritization when it comes to the demand that comes into IT. And when we're fortunate here at Ball where we've actually taken the GBS org, our data services org, and our technology org and put them all under one umbrella. So we, we feel like we have uh, the organizational construct to really meet the business where they're at and help prioritize their man because we have services, we have the process, we have the data, and we have the technology all under one roof. All right, the next question is for you, Trista, which is, is GBS or business the office of the fairy tale? There is a perception that the business will go and get this nice demo, cool looking UI from some vendor, the latest and the greatest, and the business teams want it. So is that perception true? Yes. Oftentimes there is a desire to solve business problems with technology. So um, my job as leading our global business services is to be a bit of the moderator of that. As the business comes to us, we have to try to solve those with um, solutions that are fit for purpose that also um, meet the needs of our you know, budgetary constraints and restrictions, leveraging technology where we already have technology in place. Got it. Maybe just a follow-up question for you on that. Yep. As you know, as a GBS leader, you're almost like a vendor yep. to your company and you have to deliver KPIs, business outcomes. Do you feel like you should have more uh, say and control in tech choosing because your whole existence is a function of delivering the outcomes as a vendor? I do think that 
the business looks to us for some of those solves and some of those solutions. So, you know, we certainly don't have full authority, but when the demand and the requirements are coming to us, we, um, the business does expect that we provide our advisory type services. And again, oftentimes that requires the partnership with our IT counterparts to make sure that, you know, we're leveraging what we might already have in place, if that's an option, or that, you know, there's a roadmap evaluation to make sure we're not going too far off course. So um, I do think that there's a, a, a level of authority that GBS needs to play because um, in, in deciding uh, what technology is involved, but it has to be in partnership with IT. Got it. I guess, Brian, any any thoughts on that? Maybe just to kind of qualify that a bit, since like the GBS organizations are a bit more unique in that they don't own the function, but they do delivery of the function. So they might be on the hook for DSO reduction, days to close, productivity, efficiency, their whole existence. Do you feel like they should have a different role in IT decisioning? And what do you see at Ball? Absolutely. And in fact, it's it's something that we've tried to instill here at Ball. If you think about um, how we've structured just our our technology process and data decisions. You know, one of the frameworks I love uh, from an enterprise architecture is this this open architecture framework called TOGAF, T-O-G-A-F. And, you know, why I like it is because when, when you think about technology, when you think about process, when you think about the services layer and the data layer, we don't lead with that. We lead with business strategy. We underpin business strategy with business capabilities, really understanding the critical capabilities, the core capabilities to run the business. And then we have the discussion as a global shared services team, GBS, GDS, which is our global data services, and GTS, which is our global technology services, Mm -hmm. around how we enable those business capabilities. So our GBS org, they're not only the end-to-end global process owners, they're also the data domain owner. They're also the technology capability owner, uh, really enabling that business capability. So they, they get to wear the hat of process, data, technology, and then, of course, services. Got it. All right, switching topics a bit, I want to talk about technology hype cycle and how things evolve, especially with a newer technology called RPA. Uh, started very high, but there is a lot of talk in the industry now. Is it really stable? Is it working out? Do you have any firsthand experience you can share with Trista from your perspective of applying RPA and GBS? Yes, um, I will. I will share a little bit on the history of what we've done with RPA at Ball, and then I'll turn it to Brian because the evolution of RPA it, it did start in GBS as a center of excellence where we um, set up you know, we're really focused on establishing the right governance structure for RPA involving our architecture team, our internal audit teams to ensure we had the right, um, you know, again, the governance to say, what what do we want to automate and what makes sense? And it definitely is a balancing act between automating bad processes and then um, and saving manual work. Uh, initially, our first couple of years with that RPA COE in place, we did save hundreds of thousands of dollars across the enterprise and were able to help some of the functions in the business like our HR teams or um, our finance teams with um, some of the services we provided with that. 
Um, but then we couldn't really keep up with the request because we started seeing so much value being generated from um, the, the RPA COE. Uh, we did, and, and we saw also on the horizon, the, um, the AI play coming into, you know, coming into focus. And so it was important at that point that we transition it to um, the IT team to, uh, to really expand the, the potential of the services and, and look a little deeper into the AI opportunities. Got it, Brian? Yeah, I, I would just build upon what Trista said. You know, we've had the RPA COE in place for a little over three years. Um, we, we've actually put into production almost 300 bots. Um, there are currently 212 actually in our production environment today. And, and I, I like to think of it as RPA 1.0, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of your traditional scripting and, and emulating the keystrokes on a keyboard, if you will. Uh, where we're headed, and, and especially as you think about some of the, the emerging technology around AI and, and generative AI, is, is really what we're calling uh, uh, intelligent processing, intelligent automation. And um, I think there's a real opportunity to add the cognitive piece in that comes with generative AI. And, and I think how we led with a GBS lead, uh, it, it really speaks to the, the, the citizen developer concept, which I believe is absolutely real. I actually think that as we look out towards um, some of the emerging technology, citizen developers are going to be an inherent important part of how we deliver business capabilities. Got it. Brian, one of the things that we, uh, the audience would like to know and they're very curious about is, is bots don't tend to be stable because you're taking a process and bot is like an all or nothing. It's not a humans plus machines interaction. And then they tend to break a bit and then it increases the IT maintenance costs. Are you seeing any of that? We don't see a lot of it. So, you know, one of the things that uh, when I think about an end-to-end -end process, any time you have a manual step, it's not automated. So what I look to do is to drive as much automation for that end-to-end -end as we can, because where you're going to have the failure points, where you're going to have uh, issues with the end-to-end -end is where you actually have function points that are manual, um, that are analog. And, you know, sometimes a bot's put in place temporarily as a workaround. So you heard me talk about almost 300 bots that we've put into production. We only have 212 in production today. That means we've life cycled some of the bots when they, when, when we are able to actually put in a hardened solution. Next question, Brian, we'll start with you. How does IT budgets work? Because I think everybody wants to automate a process. Everybody's department function is a priority. So how do you manage that at, uh, at Ball? Yeah, we, we do an annual roadmap exercise, and, and I, I want to be clear, annual operating planning and annual processes, they're great for putting together kind of a high-level investment strategy, but uh, Trista's GBS team, where our capability heads uh, sit, they own the process, they own the data, they own the technology, and they own the services, meet with their functional counterparts every month, if not more. But we, we do an annual roadmap exercise where we look at the investments being asked, both at a global level, at a regional level, and a life cycle level. And, and we put together um, uh, those asks, and then we go through a, a, a level of prioritization 
uh, and demand planning, uh, starting off with our own internal review in Global Shared Services, then with our business stakeholders, and finally the exact committee. Follow-up question for you, Trista. So I'm sure most of these investments require some type of business case value because you have to relatively prioritize and everybody's asking for the money. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Well, we um, recently uh, implemented a, a, a process around ensuring that our projects, anything over a million dollars, is um, being uh, passed through a post-implementation review and ensuring that that business case that was presented at the time of, of the road mapping exercise is, is validated and that we are extracting the value from those projects. So, um, and these PIRs, post-implementation reviews, they cover both the uh, financial investment and the value returned on the project, as well as you know the quality of the implementation, the level of adoption that the system the is is um, uh, warranting, and so that is uh, a new process that we've put into place, and and we have um, you know steering committees involved in any of these larger projects that consist of a group of stakeholders, um, including original sponsors of the project. So the business um, who, who originally requested the project or um, the business who had the requirements that we needed to solution for, they're part of the entire project all the way through and into the post-implementation review to ensure that, again, the value, the adoption um, and the quality of the project uh, the results, the return on that investment is is a real thing um, and is, is truly validated. All right. Brian, question for you. This is around ERP, SAP Oracle, uh, versus the best of the breed software. There's always been this classic debate of let's keep everything in one ERP, but over the decade or 20 years, there's a lot of customization. How has that strategy evolved uh, in, in, the, in your office at Ball Corporation now? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. I think I think we are at a inflection point as you think about exponential steps uh, in in technology and how we look at IT landscapes. You know, when I think about ERPs, when I think about these large enterprise SaaS providers, software as a service, I think it's going to go the way of the dinosaur. And and you know, when I think about my technology landscape, I like to use the analogy, think of my landscape as a parking lot. And in that parking lot, you have all of these RVs. Mm-hmm. They're just parked side by side. And each RV has a different license plate, one commercial, one finance, one supply chain. And I, I love these RVs that are beautiful. They're all decked out. They got a shower. They got a kitchen. They all have all the bells and whistles. Very expensive, multifunctional. And then I look at the behaviors of the business. Every morning I see the commercial head jump in their RV and I see them driving down the road. And I watch this pattern of behavior and I'm noticing they're using it as a daily driver. Mm-hmm. And I, I watch supply chain. They, that supply chain head hops in their RV and they're driving it down to uh, Bandemere Speedway here in Colorado and they're using it as a drag racer. <laughs> I really think with emerging technology and as we look at low code, no code platforms, uh, my desire is fit for purpose applications. You mm-hmm. know, I'll, I'll give you an example. We have over 800 Z codes just sitting in one of our instances for South America for SAP. You know, our goal and our desire is to actually start to migrate all those Z codes into a, a software extensibility framework. 
and really getting a clean core and driving fit for purpose applications um, using low code, no code development platforms. So I, I really think there's a major paradigm shift and we don't have to be beholden to the large enterprise SaaS providers where we're, we're spending thousands, millions of dollars for RVs when we can build fit for purpose daily drivers if we need it, a race car if we need it. And, and for me, I think it's a game changer. As you think about some of the, the low-code development platforms, of course, if it has an adjacency to our SAP ERP, for example, we use BTP, SAP's BTP, Business Technology Platform. Uh, if there's an adjacency to um, our, our service management, we'll use ServiceNow. And then mm -hmm. for our, our uh, business capabilities, uh, as Trista's team, our GBS org meets with our business partners, enabling business capabilities, we'll use Microsoft's power platform. Trista, your, your thoughts on that? You feel like the GBS is ready for the citizen development? Uh, basically, Brian is saying, hey, I'm sure you'll have a lot of needs, so I'm going to empower you with your tools. Go figure it out yourself. With the proper governance, yes. I think that we can we can manage that. Um, we you know, that, that to me is the key is that as long as we have the structure, the boundaries um, in place, the governance in place, um, the citizen developer can be a really powerful enabler for us. The number of demands that come in from the, from the business on a, on a weekly basis just doesn't slow down, even though, you know, our budgets are fixed. All right. Trista and Brian, thank you so much for your time and being our guests on the show. Very valuable insights. Thank you. Thank you.